Good evening, my brothers and my sisters. I pray that you are well. We greet you in the name of Christ, that name whereby men shall be saved. I thank you for joining us tonight for this third night of our virtual Bible study, Essential Faith in a Virtual World. And I am delighted and excited to have my dear brother with me on this evening, a uh, man who I have utmost respect for, Reverend C.J. Rhodes, Dr. C.J. Rhodes. Uh, he is the pastor of the Mount Helm Baptist Church here in Jackson, uh, Mississippi. Dr. Rhodes is a native of Hazelhurst, Mississippi, graduated from Hazelhurst High School. Uh, from there, he went on to the University of Mississippi and received his Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy. Uh, from there, he matriculated on to Duke University, where he received his Master of Divinity. And just recently, he completed the, the Doctor of Ministry uh, degree from Wesley Theological Biblical Seminary here in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, he also serves as the rector of the Alcorn, that's right, Brave Nation, uh, Alcorn State University. I, yeah, I see you. I see you out there. <laughs> Uh, and so the purple and gold is flying well because the last two weeks we've had two Jacksonians uh, to serve as our guest lecturers. So the brave nation is up this this evening. Uh, and so we're delighted again to have my dear brother. Uh, I, I affectionately call him my little brother. Uh, I had the pleasure of, of actually marrying he and his beautiful bride, Allison, uh, some years ago. They are the parents of two beautiful twin boys, Duke and Josie, and so I thank him uh, that he has consented to be our lecturer for tonight as we delve into a new topic of pneumatology. But before we get into all of that, Dr. Rhodes, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to greet the people. How you doing, man? Doing well, brother. It's a pleasure to be here with you and to share uh, in this platform with other uh, preaching brothers who have already uh, blessed and blown our minds and uh, just humbled to be a part uh, of this series seminar team. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Rose, it, Rose is, 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 a, is a social media uh, mogul, I would say. <laughs> he, he's a guy who, who's very nimble and flexible. He has a C.J. Rhodes show, a radio show that comes on on Sunday uh, afternoons. Uh, he's always posting things. One of the things I've been noticing that you've been posting over the years, brother, you, you post these pictures of, of meals that you fix. Uh, you make it real hard on us other preachers. You posting all these meals, and, and and I guess with it being Mother's Day that's coming up weekend, is your mom responsible for that? For your cooking uh, expertise in the in the kitchen, where'd you get all that from? Yeah, absolutely. A large portion of that, I would say, ninety five percent of it came from uh, watching mom and experimenting in the kitchen, trying to mimic various meals she made, and my late paternal grandmother, uh, who wow. lived about three minutes from us kind of in the backyard from us, uh, was also very instrumental. So I would watch her in the kitchen uh, many times. And so my mom told me that uh, you better learn how to cook because, you know, you're going to be in life and you may be on, on your own or whatever. Learn how to, you know, be able to survive. And that's really where it began. Uh, but then I really picked up kind of a culinary design and desire behind it. So watching the Food Network and other kinds of shows uh, really kind of, helped me over the years. So I've been cooking now really, I guess, since about age 11 or 12. Oh, wow. And, uh, so, I, you know, I enjoy cooking for my wife and our sons and every now and again cooking for other folks. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like hosting parties, but every now and again I'll cook enough. I, I, you know, the problem is I've learned to cook for more than a few people, and so I'm always having uh, leftovers that sometimes get thrown out. But I, I appreciate uh, how people uh, take a look at, at those pictures on, on Facebook. <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of, of your family, your boys, I guess you're you're, you're doing the whole uh, uh, parent-teacher thing now with the uh, uh, COVID. Uh, how's that working for you? Yeah, it's been it's been um, rough, but but we've been <laughs> surviving. Uh, trying to make sure they stay motivated intellectually, while balancing that with the fact that both Alice and I still work. You know, we still yeah. have uh, responsibilities. Uh, and so uh, I think COVID-19, more than any other thing, has uh, helped us to appreciate the power and promise of a village that wow. we have their grandparents and others who continue to pour into them, our church family that provides resources from time to time. And so uh, I hope that after this subsides in the next several months or uh, early 21, that we have a greater appreciation mm-hmm. for our grade school teachers, our preschool teachers, because, man, uh, what they're able to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, eight hours a day is phenomenal. We we in no way can hold a candle to what uh, New Hope uh, Preschool was able to do uh, for Duke and Joseph. So we greatly appreciate their teachers and every teacher out there uh, who's doing the hard work Monday through Friday of educating our young people. Amen. Amen. God bless. Well, listen, that, that being said, uh, why don't we delve into our, our topic of discussion for tonight, uh, uh, pneumatology, as we um, think about, uh, yeah, all, all that we're faced with uh, today as a nation, as a state, as a city, uh, as a people. Uh, and this, this, this word, pneumatology, break that down for us. What does that really mean, um, and, and how, how have we come uh, as Christians, as Baptists, uh, to understand uh, the, the the movings and the iterations of the spirit down through the through the generations, the floor is yours, brother. Have have at it. Yeah, thank you. So I think your your sort of last few uh, comments there really unpack what the definition of pneumatology is. In seminary and divinity school, we learn all these fancy ologies, and pneumatology is probably one of the terms that we are less familiar with. Uh, pneumatology is the compound of two Greek words, pneuma and logos. Pneuma, wind, breath, spirit, logos, reason, or word. And so essentially pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit and the things of the Spirit. So uh, broadly speaking, pneumatology in the first sense covers who and what uh, the Holy Spirit is, uh, who the Holy Spirit, particularly for those of us in the Baptist tradition, is uh, known as the Lord and giver of life, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We tend to uh, primarily baptize according to Matthew 28:19 in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so pneumatology, therefore, is the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What has the Holy Spirit done? in redemption history. Uh, And then, how does the Holy Spirit relate to the church and to the believer, right? So so there's a way in which pneumatology serves two purposes. One, who is the Holy Spirit? And then two, what is the Spirit's relationship to the people of God? Uh, Paul uses the language to uh, describe the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit, or those of us who grew up on King James, the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so what does it mean for individuals who are part of the body of Christ and the church, the gathered people of God, to be spiritual, right? Uh, It's important then to really think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, now concerning 
spirituality or now concerning spiritual things or now considering things of the spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant or misinformed. And he goes on to, to talk about there and other places how really the true mark of Christian spirituality is that it is by the Holy Spirit that we are able to confess Jesus as Lord. That if we don't claim Jesus as Lord, then we cannot claim to truly have the Spirit of God. He says in Romans, particularly Romans 6 through 8, we see these sort of implicit and explicit understandings of the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer who uh, prays for us when we don't have words to pray, that, uh, that, that gives us in the mind to understand the revelation of God. Because Paul would say, those who are carnal, those who, who, who live according to the flesh, cannot understand or comprehend spiritual things. Now, as pneumatology relates to Baptists, uh, Baptists, as, as you know, uh, we are a very diverse, divergent group of folks because unlike other traditions, uh, we cannot point necessarily to a founder. You know, we would say, well, Jesus is the founder, right? Let's bracket that. Let, let's look at various traditions. You know, John Calvin and the Presbyterians, uh, Martin Luther and the Lutherans, John Wesley and the Wesleyans and the Methodists, uh, Charles Harrison Mason and the Church of God in Christ. We can't, though, point to a founding father or founding mother. Uh, and, and Baptists have historically been uh, profoundly, profusely independent. So uh, we, we talk about Baptists. Are we talking about National Baptists? Are we talking about Progressive Baptists? Are we talking about Missionary Baptists? Are we talking about Southern Baptists? Are we talking about American Baptists? Are we talking about Cooperative Baptists? And between these denominational tribes and within them, there is, oh goodness, so much diversity about any subject, especially pneumatology. And so, um, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll move into then um, a little bit of kind of the general sense of what Baptists have often taught and believed, and then some areas of controversy uh, that are very important for our understanding. Sure. Sure, sure. Well, and as you do that, um, uh, and, and you're bringing into the discussion our Baptist traditions and roots and, and heritage, let me, let me just uh, say that you, you recently authored um, a book that is the product of your dissertation, Deeper Steel. You mentioned just a moment ago uh, Charles H. Mason as the founder of, of Church of God in Christ and, and Mount Helm having a, a, a large role in, in that founding. Um, some of our audience may not understand some of that history. Would you, would you briefly uh, share some of that to, to sort of give the context of, of, of where you're headed? Yeah. Well, let me use, let me use the, the book then as a case study for the tensions about Baptists and the Holy Spirit. So uh, the book is titled Deeper Steel, and it is, as you know, <clears throat> a, a refashioning of my dissertation. The dissertation was about 200 pages. I went through and chopped out all the stuff that only academics want to read about to make it a more readable book for, for lay readers. So the book is really intended for pastors, for Sunday school teachers, for, you know, for uh, Congress of Christian Education, et cetera, uh, so people can help wrap their minds around um, a very important yet often overlooked element of black Baptist church history. So 
what what inspired this? Let me begin with inspired me to do the dissertation on this and ultimately to to publish this book, which is forthcoming. It will be uh, released on on May 31st on Pentecost Sunday, right? Pentecost uh, being uh, uh, relevant to to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you, you you planned it that way. You had to plan it that way, <laughs> I, I or, or it was the spirit, I guess. Yeah, the spirit yeah. led me. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of saying it. The spirit led me to to release this uh, on on Pentecost Sunday uh, because, as as our national Baptist president, Dr. Jerry Young, has said, as Baptists, we have gone to Calvary for our our uh, pardon, uh, but we also need to go to Pentecost for our power. And, and my spiritual journey has really been <clears throat> an opportunity to put Baptist and Pentecostal uh, cultures, uh, doctrinal positions, and conversation. I grew up <clears throat> in a missionary Baptist church culture in, in Hazelhurst uh, and was in that, uh, in that stream up until about 13 when my dad left his home church and we joined a Methodist church in Jackson. But in my teens, I was going through uh, what I could call an age of skepticism. I was agnostic, had many, many questions for the Christian faith, and there were questions that you really couldn't get answers to. I grew up still, I mean, I'm not yet 40, I'll be 38 next week, but I, I grew up in a culture where you didn't really ask questions. You know, you ask people in the church questions about anything, they'll tell you, oh boy, go somewhere and sit down. So to all these profound questions, I started reading all these various books, reading the Quran, reading the Bhagavad Gita, all these various texts, and was exposed largely because of the books in my dad's library from his Millsaps days, and, and was sort of exposed to this wider world. And so I had very profound doubts uh, about, about my faith, about Christianity, about the church, about the black church in particular, about uh, uh, inconsistencies I saw between what we were preaching and what we were living. And it wasn't until about 16 and a half, when uh, a few of my friends who were Pentecostals uh, began to really evangelize me. And we went toe-to-toe because I would ask them questions. Sometimes they could answer, sometimes they couldn't. Uh, and, and so we would go back and forth. But the, but the good news for me is that they, they at least uh, at the end of the day were my friends and, and were open to the questions. But then after we would wrestle and fight about stuff, we would go and get ice cream or, or a snowball or something like that. Well, eventually I end up going to a revival meeting they invite me to, and I go there partly with the intent to disprove what's happening in the revival, especially at the altar call. And I won't go into all the details, but essentially when the altar call happens, I go to the altar it, it basically to prove it uh, a farce, and uh, once it's all said and done, I get off the floor, and, and my whole world has changed. I just, it's like God gave me a new set of eyes. I once was blind and now I uh, saw. And that really opened me up to God in a way that I had not before. It was as if, in the words of Andre Crouch, it soothed my doubts and calmed my fears. Wow. And so now I had this Baptist upbringing and this Pentecostal experience. Wow. And they were, they seemed to be in conflict, right? Because yeah. my Baptist folk were saying those Pentecostal folk are, are holy rollers and crazy. The Pentecostal folks were saying the Baptists weren't saved, and I was like, there's got to be more to both than what I'm learning. And so my journey really in, in, in uh, college and in divinity school was really a journey to synthesize what I grew up with, what I now experienced, and, uh, and the book in some ways 
uh, speaks to that. I don't know if you wanted to, to, to break in there. Well, yeah, so 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 the the Baptists and the Pentecostal, the Baptocostal, uh, I yeah, think is the yeah. term that 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 we've started to hear much more about in in recent years, and the the merging of those two traditions. But uh, apparently, uh, from from your studies and and from the the history of of Baptist movement. Uh, being in touch and in tune and having signs of the spirit, gifting of the spirit, is not divorce of the whole heritage of of Baptist faith anyway, and Absolutely. and yet and yet we feel like there's there's that oh if you're Baptist you don't do certain things that tend to be more Pentecostal in nature now, but yet that's that's actually some of our hi- historical footprints. Absolutely, and, and that's spot on. And so basically what, what that journey led me to is this, rec, this reconciliation. Uh, one of my favorite professors at Duke, uh, William C. Turner, uh, was one who really helped me lean into this. I had other uh, persons in, in college days as well, but because he was at Duke and a scholar and affirming this in me, it, it really helped me. And so what was interesting is that in his, uh, one of his classes, I was introduced to Charles Price Jones. Charles Price Jones, uh, as I would come to learn, was the fifth pastor of Mount Helm Baptist Church, who pastored there from 1895 to 1901. And it would be God's providence, uh, after learning about Jones, to be one of his successors, if you will, at Mount Helm. I'll be very frank with you. I didn't, I didn't know Mount Helm still existed because I was a Hayeshurst boy who only knew basically about, you know, the big churches like Cain and Jackson. I, I didn't even know Mount Helm still still existed. I was reading about history in divinity school that went back to the 1800s. Wow. So I'm like, okay. And so then I, you know, by God's providence, get a phone call from one of the members who invites me to come in to be a supply preacher, and that turns into them asking me to submit uh, an application to come in to pastor the church and, and you know, long story short, I'm called April 1st of, of 2010 to, to leave, leave that church, uh, partly on the recommendation of my predecessor, Charles Spann, who, as he was uh, leaving the church, was saying, y'all need to get a young preacher. Y'all need to get a young preacher. And look, this is how the spirit works. His, his, his sort of part of his leadership of, of Mount Helm was about centering the church, listen, on the work and witness of the Holy Spirit. When I got there, the church motto was from one of the minor prophets, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. wow. So here I am, this Baptocostal, who's affirmed <laughs> in that at Duke, with a professor who introduces me to Charles Price Jones, gets called to a church that Jones once pastored. Wow. Succeeding a preacher who... Uh, and let's be very open and honest, who basically was talking a lot about the Holy Spirit, his sister, Lanny Stan McBride. Yeah. I mean, yeah. come on, y'all. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> I, I, I've been in shock at convention meetings. You sing it and going in tongues. I'm looking yeah. like, yeah. did anybody just hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we're still in a Baptist convention, right? <laughs> we're still in a Baptist convention, right? And so, and so there's this world that I believe God has equipped me to, to be kind of a messenger, a herald, a reformer in. And so, by the time I get to, to Wesley, um, I'm, I'm, I'm infatuated with this history. And so I studied Jones, who became our pastor in 1895. 
Jones comes to Mount Helm. They asked him to, to, to be the pastor twice before. He turned them down two times. The third time was the charm. He becomes the pastor, but right before he got to Mount Helm in Selma, Alabama, he had an experience that really deepened his faith. And uh, it was an encounter with the Holy Spirit that he wanted to really be um, a, a pivot for him in, in pastoral ministries. So when he got to Jackson in 1895, he was on fire with the Holy Spirit. He, he was, you know, just, uh, just look, the Holy Spirit is the only way we're going to resolve issues in church and society. And, and Jones, uh, as I studied it, really stepped into a very interesting debate between black Baptists. It goes back to the 1860s. After slavery, there were, according to uh, Carter G. Woodson, two major tribes of black Baptists, particularly the Delta and places like uh, Jackson. He called them the conservatives and the progressives. And for, for Woodson, these were political terms. These were sort of sociological terms to describe what was going on in, in black church life at, at that time. The conservatives were, let me put it this way, were black Baptists who said, I wouldn't have a religion I couldn't feel sometimes. Right? And, and they, they are, you know, let me just kind of bring it, bring it home. They are the kinds of Baptists who hoop, who holler, who catch the Holy Ghost, who fall out, who dance, who shout, right, who, who have holy oil to anoint the sick. I mean, we see these things, right? Right. You and right. I talked about going to certain churches, say, in the Delta and just blown away right. by just how animated, right? right? And people think about the Baptists as being cold and, and, and solid and still, right? But... There, there's this history that comes through and after slavery where passionate preaching, passionate worship, and, and a reliance on the Holy Spirit. One of the things you read about, particularly in, in the conservative uh, black Baptist culture, is a dependence upon dreams and visions, God speaking, the immediacy. So, so what's carried on, particularly in certain streams of, of black Baptist life, is the notion that a pastor ain't a pastor, or, or a preacher rather, until the preacher has been called in some fantastic way. God has given that preacher a dream or a vision. Now, the progressives who were a little younger than the conservatives, by and large, and a minority in the church, were moving into a more, uh, what I would call, refined, sophisticated understanding of black church. They said, look, if we're going to be able to show white folks, basically, that we are equal with them, that we deserve the same rights and privileges as they do. We've got to clean up our worship. We've got to get rid of things that we did in slavery. We've got to, we've got to you know, so they introduced hymn books. They introduced learned clergy, the, the notion that clergy must be trained through a seminary uh, uh, training or something along, uh, along those lines, that we must be respectable. And so there are black Baptists in that stream where, uh, for instance, the, the singing comes out of the hymnal. Uh, the worship is more tame. They may be emotional, but it's still reserved to the degree that you see in other settings. And so when you look at Baptist churches today, what you're really seeing are the, the successors of these two big camps, either the conservatives who say they couldn't have a religion, they couldn't feel sometimes, or the more respectable Baptists who say, look, you know, God calls you. Uh, when, when the Spirit uses you, the Spirit wants you to also come and sit. These are actually takeaways from a broader culture into which Charles Price Jones and Charles Harrison Mason step, where they say, 
both camps have something positive to say. Jones particularly says, we need the learning. We need the development. We need, we need li literacy. But we cannot do that without the burning. We need the learning plus the burning. And so I call what Jones does as a radical position that synthesizes what the conservatives believed about the immediacy of the spirit and what progressives understood about education, empowerment, social action, and then forges a third way that I, I believe I'm successful with. Yeah. So, so CJ, um, where, where you are right now then in, in this discussion, the, the idea of learning and burning, um, yeah. and, and, and I'm glad we're taking this route to talk about the spirit because this is much more this is much more about application than just uh, yeah. you know just just what the Bible says. Hearing your lived experience, uh, what you felt uh, in, in terms of your uh, experience with the Holy Spirit, uh, the the guiding and the inspiration of the Spirit to lead you to a church uh, that that you you heard of but uh, didn't know was still in existence, and here you are today pastoring pastor in that very church but if if we can take 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 us to scripture for just a little bit to because the idea of I think one of the things that that Baptists have struggled with not just Baptists Christians in general have struggled with is is the idea of what does it mean to be filled with the spirit right when when is one filled with when do I know that I have it right you you have these uh the these these revival meetings uh, from from long ago, where people would sit on the mourners' bench, and and that's for salvation. But then there was another thing: you sat in until you got the the tarrying of the spirit. So, so what? All of those different, all those different um, uh, understandings of how the spirit moves. When you in fact are filled with the spirit, what is the result of one's being filled? One being filled with the spirit, the fruit, all of that. Unpack some yes. of that for us. Uh, as it relates to the, the, your, your interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. So let me begin with saying uh, as a premise that uh, Baptists and Pentecostals are, are more like cousins than, than we are enemies because a lot of what is in black Pentecostalism is really uh, a retention or retrieval of what black Baptists believed in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and maybe even to the 90s. So, for instance, the Church of God in Christ in large measure uh, I was talking about uh, Mount Helm earlier. Uh, Jones and Mason partnered together, and it was really at Mount Helm that you see the, the um, origins of the Church of God in Christ. Um, they're really simply retrieving stuff that Baptists believed prior to the 1890s when you started to see these tensions between the conservatives and the progressives. Uh, but, but there are very real distinctives between um, some of what Baptists believe and some of what Pentecostals believe. And so let, let me kind of walk through a few things. Um, I look at it, and this is not in the book, but just sort of what I was thinking about in preparation for, for this uh, uh, seminar. What I call five C's. And, and I think where about the first three C's, Baptists and Pentecostals say, yeah, we agree, and the last two C's are where we kind of diverge here and there. So we believe the Holy Spirit shows up in these five C's. First of all, in creation. You read Genesis 1 and 2, you recognize the Spirit of God is right there in the very beginning when creation is, is happening. And then you don't get a living soul, uh, Adam, uh, until God breathes into uh, uh, the human's nostrils the breath of life, the Ruach. And so we would all agree that, that, that uh, 
the cosmic life, human life, is impossible without the Spirit. All right? So we would agree on the cosmic dimensions of the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, what we see, particularly in the Old Testament, is calling. We see various testaments, particularly in the uh, book of Judges uh, and in, in uh, later uh, call narratives in the Old Testament, where the Spirit comes upon key figures. Um, one of the most popular for many Baptists in particular would be David in 1 Samuel 16. Not only is he called to succeed Saul as the new king, but here's his language of anointing. He's anointed. The horn of oil is poured over him. Oil flows upon him. And the text says something very powerful. Uh, in fact, let me try to pull that very quickly. Uh, and this is something that I think a lot of times we may miss if we just rush very quickly uh, through that story because we're so familiar with it. Um, in 1 Samuel 16, um, let's begin at verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. That's uh, Jesse, David's father. Now he was, David was, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so there's a sense in which the anointing, this is the language we hear both in Baptist and Pentecostal circles, that the anointing of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit gives you an efficacy, gives you an added ump, a second wind, gives you something that gives you what I call a qualitative difference in how you lead. And so um, calling, we'll, we'll say things like, especially in Baptist circles, you know, Pastor Bugs, man, that, that Negro show can preach. He's anointed to preach, right? Which also means you ain't anointed to do something else, <laughs> right? Because we assume that you're anointed to do this, but not anointed to do that, right? And so that call language is something that we share in both Pentecostal and, and Baptist circles. And then we get to the third C, conversion. I think many, many Baptists and Pentecostals would agree that the work of the Spirit is pronounced in the New Testament in, in the Spirit's role in convicting the world of sin and convincing sinners of the need of a Savior. So we look particularly at John 14, John 15, John chapter 3. Um, we, we talk about being born again. And there's a song we tend to sing, uh, even in Baptist churches, we talk about, you must have that fire and Holy Ghost, that burning thing, right? The sense that the Spirit of God is important in being, um, being born from above. Uh, Jesus says in John uh, 3, uh, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused by this. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. So, so, and it goes on, right? So we would say as Baptists that we believe in a born again religion, a second birth, a, a, uh, unless one is born again, one cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how that is applied in certain circles, what that looks like has differed. For, for historical black Baptists, going back to slavery through Reconstruction to the early 1900s, that, is, that has looked like getting religion. And what is getting religion? You brought it up earlier, the mourner's bench. There is only really two steps of the difference between the mourner's bench and the tearing service because there was this sense that black Baptists and our black Pentecostal cousins understood 
that you don't have real religion until you have something you can feel. That there's there's an experiential something that that you know I went to a meeting one night my soul went right something got a hold of me and now I'm, I'm different I looked at my hands they were new I looked at my feet they were too there's sense that being saved or being born again being regenerate uh, a term that we use in Baptist circles has to effectuate some kind of difference in the lived reality of the belief. That, that, and so for Baptists, we would be people who have historically said there are signs of conversion. There are fruit of repentance, that something happens in your life, and you begin to sense and feel that work. Now, others would say, well, what happens when you, you know, go to Romans 10, you confess with your mouth, you believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and was raised from the dead, and you don't feel nothing. Right? That was one of the issues I had actually at age 13. My dad, being a good Baptist, told me if I didn't get baptized at age 13, I would, if I died, and went to, uh, if I died at, at 13, I would go to hell because I was no longer under his uh, insurance. <laughs> right, the age of accountability. And so I say, well, I need to, I need to go through this. I go down the aisle, do all this kind of stuff, get baptized. I'm looking, for, I'm waiting for angels to appear and all this kind. Of, nothing, nothing really felt different. I, you know, I went through the motions. I like. Man, so I had to wrestle with the sense of, well, then when was I truly converted? And so for me, I'm going to argue, I'm, you know, I'm going to put my cards there, that God did a work in me at age 13. Hmm. Just because I didn't feel it didn't mean God wasn't working. And I yeah. do think there is a problem when we put too much emphasis on the feeling of religion than the affirmation. Wow. 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 Yeah, yeah. Go, go into that. Go into that. Yeah, I mean, because even even with a call, right? Even take take for instance, go back to the calling. Think about someone as impactful as Martin Luther King Jr. And we, you know, most of us uh, would say that we believe he was a called man of God, that God called him to be a prophet. But if you search King's record, there's never a testimony of him having an original call to ministry as we understand it. There was no dream. There was no vision. Uh, he didn't have a near near death experience. None of those very dramatic moments. He just said, "Look, my granddaddy was a preacher. My dad's a preacher. I kind of wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I kind of stumbled into ministry." Right now, I believe that along the way, God confirms and affirms that He's used to, uh, uh, to, for ministry. But there is no initial something that happens that you can point to. So, I, you know, I think the the other danger. Of, of, of called narratives is, two, well, two things. One, we've seen historically that the more outrageous the call narrative, the more believable it is. And so people can make up all kinds of experiences. There were people in our history that got tired of working the land. They said a frog talked to them and called them to ministry, and because it sounded so outrageous, people said, well, you come to be our pastor. Well, how do you, how do you really confirm something that's very subjective? How do I know? You know, that God did that work in your life. I, all I can really do is base it on inductive reasoning. Over time, your testimony will either bear out or it won't. Um, also, um, the fact that people have to fake the experience, right? So people have to fake tears of repentance uh, when, when they are uh, uh, on the mourner's bench. Or folk have to fake tongues at, at a tearing service. They got tired of sitting there two hours waiting on on the evidence. And so when you become too uh, animated by experience, you, you miss, I think, the assurance of Scripture that even without the feeling, which, you know, feelings can go come and go, 
that there is something about a righteous relationship, justification by faith, which ultimately, and I think Baptists would, would argue primarily, particularly from Ephesians, that, that our salvation is by faith through grace alone, so that, that the feeling doesn't save us. Maybe the feeling is an outworking of the grace of God, uh, but whether one felt something or didn't, it is the grace of God, not our works, that really produces something uh, in, in our lives. And so that is um, some of the, the difficulty with assigning uh, all of this on feeling or experience. But I would think, generally speaking, for those first uh, three C's, creation, calling, conversion, there, there's general consensus between Baptists and, and Pentecostals. The last two C's is where we start to get into some of the, the controversies, and that is around character and around uh, charismata, character, how we understand the doctrine of sanctification. So many Baptists have, uh, black Baptists in particular, have historically majored in justification by faith and saying things like, well, you know, justification is just as if I've never sinned. And the, the stereotype, whether it's accurate or not, of, of Baptists is that Baptists can live shoddy lives. We can do whatever we want to because we say, right? And, and so, the, 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 you know, the testimonies have often been that, um, in fact, I remember hearing this uh, uh, guest preacher preaching when uh, I was in Oxford. He was saying things like, you know, if I went out and cheated on my wife today and I was caught in bed and I died of a heart attack, I'm still going to heaven. And he just went down this list of all these things he could do because he's saved. I kind of understood to some degree what he was talking about in terms of perseverance of the saints, but it gave this sense, right? You can just live any kind of way because you, what, confess with your mouth and, you know, you gave the Lord your heart and the pastor your hand. And so one of the tense areas between Baptists and Pentecostals has been over the issue, the doctrine of sanctification. How much does character matter? Uh, just because you can hoop, just because you can sing, just because you go to BTU Sunday school doesn't mean that you can live any kind of way. And I would argue even, uh, and this is, again, going back to church history uh, uh, studies, that Baptists were actually the first holiness people because historically, going back to the 1600s, Baptists were arguing against the state church model, which said as long as you're a citizen of Germany or a citizen of England, you are a member of the church. Baptists said, see, a lot of times we think that Baptists uh, are primarily defined by our baptism, by immersion. But baptism by immersion is sort of a secondary thing. The primary thing is the belief in a regenerate church, that only members who are saved and being sanctified are truly members of the Lord's church. Therefore, how you um, identify that body is by believer's baptism and also by church discipline, right? Because historically, Baptists believe that you have to preserve the purity of the church. Take, for instance, what goes on in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the sin of, of the son and the mother-in-law uh, mother or stepmother in a sexual relationship, and that shouldn't even be mentioned among the saints. There were ways in which, historically, Baptists would throw you out if you were doing certain things, or they would call you to repent, or they would call, uh, you know, using Matthew 18 as a model to challenge certain behaviors uh, in the local congregation. But character becomes that sort of dividing line, particularly when you look at what Charles Price Jones was preaching in the 1890s and 1900s, where he was saying, 
Let's stop living beneath our privilege. God has called us to live victoriously. So this, you know, there were, there were teachings back then that said, you know, Sister Sally uh, sinned in her body, but she didn't sin in her spirit. So whatever you did in your body was okay because your spirit was saved. And this sort of platonic duality was, was rampant in many black churches. And it wasn't just Jones, right? Even one of our uh, uh, founding fathers of the, of the State Baptist Convention, Henry P. Jacobs, uh, who was a state president, talked about we gotta we got to stop having these preachers who are alcoholics and adulterers, right? He, he's calling out this character issue, right? And so character becomes one of those big, big issues that divides between uh, Baptists and Pentecostals over the years. And then lastly, here's the big one, is charismata, particularly as we look to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and, and really, really around tongues, and healings, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecies. There are major debates between certain Baptists and certain Pentecostals about which of those gifts are still for the body today or even what the definition or meaning of those gifts are uh, if they're still in practice today. And so uh, we see this going on, um, particularly going back to Jones and Mason. Um, They actually are along a spectrum in terms of this more kind of charismatic approach. Jones uh, wrote a treatise called uh, a kind of a treatise on First Corinthians 12, where he goes through and says, "Listen, as Baptists, we claim to believe the Bible. The Bible does not say anywhere that these gifts have ceased yet. Therefore, the gifts are still for the body." So he was charismatic in the sense he believed all the gifts are still available. They didn't die away with the apostles. They didn't die away with the canonization of Scripture. Now later, he and Mason would debate on. What is the meaning and significance of tongues after the Azusa uh, uh, revival in 1906 when Jones goes to to Los Angeles and comes back and says that that the initial evidence of speaking in tongues is the definitive evidence of one's being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jones says, what you talking about? We've been baptized in the Holy Ghost a long time before you went to Azusa and started speaking in tongues. And they ultimately fall out over this, and this, that's where you have a split between what's now called the Church of God in Christ and the Church of Christ Holiness USA. Um, many, many Baptists who are trained in Reformed circles would say tongues are no longer a part of the body, prophecies, healings, etc. But you're starting to see a younger group of Baptists, and this is where the book Deeper Still starts to move, who say we don't need to make a choice between our being Baptist and believing the Bible on what, is, what we understand it to teach on, on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I believe that all the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are still for the body and not just for Pentecostals. They're for Baptists as well because the Bible is not a Pentecostal book. It's, it's a book for all believers. And as such, we need to be able to have more study more and more seeking of how to, how to operate in these gifts with integrity in our local assemblies, hey, even our convention meetings, our association meetings, because I'll close with this and open up uh, any questions you may have, I want to submit to you that that too much, and this is what, what our good friend who was on last week, uh, Dr. McCallum, said once, too much of what goes for ministry today is out of perspiration, not inspiration. So I think a lot of what's going on in our dying Baptist churches, our dying association, dying conventions, is we believe if we just do one more revival, we invite the best preachers, then God's going to show up. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe what God is calling us to do 
is to seek his spirit more, to seek to be filled more and more, as, as Paul says uh, in Ephesians 5, with his spirit, so that the overflow of the fullness of the spirit will lead us to, to greater sensitivity to how God would use us in this hour to speak to um, the various needs of our people. Uh, I'll close with this one story. I remember when I was uh, on staff as, as a, an associate minister at a church in Oxford, Baptist Church, and um, we would have pastoral prayer, so we would take turns. And one Sunday, I was, I was praying, and all of a sudden, just something came upon me, and I felt this, this unction to pray against suicide. And I began to pray for five minutes or so around that. Later after the service, I received word that there was a person in the service who was planning to commit suicide after church service. But as I prayed, they felt that lift off of them. And they felt a joy fill them. I didn't lay my hands on that person. didn't know that person was in the room. I just felt to be obedient to that unction. And I would say that that was the Spirit of God in that moment giving me a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom to help somebody who was on the verge of taking their life. And I think if we open ourselves more to moments like that, to be led of the Spirit, to say, look, I know we put this program together, but God is moving us in this direction. I think we'll see more fruit uh, in, in, in our ministry. Yeah, so uh, let, let's let's. Uh, this, this is a great discussion, um, and I think I think you're hitting on something right now that people struggle with in in um, uh, religious circles, uh, in 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 orthodox, you might say, bap traditional Baptist churches. Uh, is what does it mean to be led by the Spirit, right? So, if I'm led by the Spirit, does that mean I'm supposed to be and have to be and necessarily must? speak in tongues, or is being led by the Spirit simply what you just said, that, that, that word unction, that I have an unction to do this. And, and, and it's not necessarily something that, that gets a lot of attention. It's not necessarily it's something very uh, charismatic in the sense of, 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 you know, the laying on of hands and people falling out, but it, but it is yet still as, if not more so, powerful and meaningful for people who are dealing with what they're dealing with right there, and the, and the Spirit gives you the insight or the revelation to deal with it or to talk, to talk about it. Yeah, so I, I would say a couple of things. One, I think we need to always keep in balance the gifts and the fruit. So going back to the character piece, part of being led by the Spirit, especially if you take a look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5, is within context primarily of living a holy life, to have a walk that is worthy of the Lord. So part of being led by the Spirit is to live a life that, that is sensitive to the holiness of God, sensitive to our relationship with God and with others, to love God and to love neighbor as we love ourselves. So being led, so one of the things that we need to you know, highlight, because a lot of times people talk about being led by the Spirit, and they live horrible lives. They treat their families horribly, they steal money, you know, they do all kinds of stuff, right? So I think it's important to say, what does it look like for me to have integrity in my ministry, right? Whether that's pulpit ministry, Sunday school ministry, pew ministry. Number two, I, I do think to your to the immediacy of your question is a both and. I, I, look, I look at being spirit-led as having a heightened sensitivity. It's, it's much like, um, um, for instance, here, here's an analogy. Um, I like to drink coffee. I drink coffee, one cup of coffee a day, usually for breakfast. I know it's not really good for you. But I drink coffee, and there are times when I can brew the, uh, the right uh, 
flavor of coffee, the right amount of coffee grounds uh, and ratio to water. It comes out the right color, the right, the right uh, uh, peak of, of flavor. I can add my sugar, my cream. But there are times when a little bit of salt, uh, maybe eating a piece of sausage or a, a fried egg, heightens the flavor profile of the coffee. I get to taste notes in the coffee that I wouldn't have tasted if I hadn't had that other sense awakened. And I think that when it comes to talking about being spirit-led, particularly in traditional Baptist churches, it's really about awakening parts of our walk with God, parts of our ministry that are often dormant, and, and, and it gives us a greater heightened sensitivity. God, what are you doing in this moment? Um, so, for instance, an, an example I would do, I know every preacher doesn't believe in this, but um, when I'm invited to go preach at a church, I don't like to miss the praise and worship element. I don't like to miss that part. I want to come in and get a feel of what's going on in the room. I'm picking up on information that God is sort of downloading in that moment. That I say, let me be sensitive. I know I prepared a message. I know I believe God told me to preach on this subject. But God, you may be saying and doing something in this moment. I don't want to miss it. So being spirit-led is saying, God, I don't want to miss your move. And that could mean something uh, like what I shared in, in the Oxford Church. It could mean laying hands. It could mean tongues. It could mean words of knowledge. It could mean gifts of healings. It could mean administration, because that's a gift, right? So it's about being open to all of the gifts. We read about, about nine gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And it could very well mean that we're just open to however, you know, however you want to use us, Lord, do it. And I, and I think um, the other thing that I would say is because there's so much abusive language around God told me, then we ought to, at the very best, not put that kind of language on. If we feel an unction, if we feel a certain move, use language that's not, um, you know, God told me to say, you know, I'm sensing this. I'm feeling led to say this. Do you mind if I ask you this question? I've found that sometimes using that kind of language brings down the, the, the defense mechanisms. Um, Give another example. Uh, I was in a church uh, in Arlington, Texas, my good uh, friend, uh, Pastor Dwight McKissick, and God used me in that moment, it's a Baptist church, used me in that moment uh, to really provide some, some inspiration and encouragement to folk. And as I was walking down praying for people, God would just show me a glimpse of something. I would say, look, I'm seeing X, Y, and Z. Does this make sense to you? And they say, yes, it makes sense. I did such and such. And then I would begin to pray. It was phenomenal that I didn't know these people. They didn't know me, and God gave me insight. I think that for me is what a, a, a key element to being led of the Spirit, that God gives you insight, that God puts something in you that you didn't have foreknowledge of, and, and that when God does it, the glory doesn't go to you. It goes to him because only God could know that. Only God could do that. And being humble enough to say, thank you, Lord, uh, for how you used me, used us in this moment to bring you glory. I think ultimately the gifts are about God's glory and not our own. Yeah, so, so CJ, I think one of the challenges um, is and has been um, that there feels to be competition uh, with the spirit. Who's more spiritual? Who really has the spirit? Who's being led by the spirit? And we, we even saw this when the pandemic um, first kicked mm -hmm. off and started to spread and, and, and the debate uh, b even between pastors online, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, between churches and, and religious traditions of, of who's being spiritual 
uh, and who's not, who's being led by the Spirit and who's not, um, and how that that whole debate uh, started, has shifted, has changed even now, um, I think lies in the, the, the whole, you know, how do we determine where the Spirit is, really? Who's really got the Spirit? Who's really faithful? And so how do we, I guess I'm saying that to say, how do we interpret now, or how do you interpret now, um, where we are through the lenses of, of the Spirit, the lenses of logic, faith, and reason? Where, where do those, those things converge for you? And, and where do they, and do they, uh, I don't know, do they diverge, or do they, compete with each other? Great question. So uh, a few things. One, I do think that this moment that we're in really reminds me of conversations I read about from the 1800s, where there were debates, again, between conservatives and progressives about various things, and how I think uh, Charles Price Jones in particular is illustrative of a third way. The learning and the burning together is a more appropriate approach to being spirit-led. Jones was an educated preacher-pastor who also was relying upon the leadership of the Holy Spirit to do in and for him things that his education could not provide. And I take that to be a model for me. So take, for instance, his compatriot, Charles Harrison Mason. After the split, uh, Mason goes on to found the Church of God in Christ in 1907. Not more than 10 years after that, or maybe about 10 years after that, the Spanish flu pandemic comes along. And Mason, who believes in divine healing, so did Jones. They have testimonies of laying hands on people and people recovering from polio and all kinds of things. But interestingly enough, Mason relied on, watch this, spiritual wisdom to say we're going to suspend the Holy Convocation for 1918. Because he knew that to some degree he would be exposing the saints to something bigger than just, you know, hey, a random cold here or there or or whatnot. And so I think even in that sense, Mason is a great example of someone who believed in the immediacy of the spirit, who believed in tongues, who believed in divine healing, who also had common sense or I would say spiritual wisdom to say that this is a fruitful thing to do. So in our own day, um, I believe. And I'm just, you know, this, I'm being subjective now. I believe that as I've helped to lead our congregation through the pandemic, right, i give a great example. Right before the city of Jackson put his order out, and right before the governor put his order out, I felt God already prompting me to make the decision to suspend in-person services. And it happened a few days before um, the, the mayor made a statement. Now, this is how I read. I could be wrong. I read as God was giving me insight into something I had no previous knowledge of. I didn't know what the government's decisions were or were not. The government didn't tell me to stop. God did. Come on, Zion. And and I believe the Lord gave me some insight, some knowledge, some wisdom to shepherd his flock through this season, relying on all that I was looking at, looking at the medical evidence, looking at talking to other pastors, and ultimately, I said, Lord, you do it. So great example of this. I was going to have a service up until the morning of, Sunday morning. And Sunday morning, I felt the Lord prompt me to say, suspend. And I immediately started calling everybody and said, we're not going to do service today. 
and since then have written letters and all the kind of stuff. So, you know, and I've kind of gotten past this whole thing about, you know, the beef we have, you know, or, you know, CJ ain't spiritual. Well, I believe as a spirit-led preacher, God led me in that way. I also believe uh, if we look at Scripture, there are moments when Jesus, for instance, um, handled these things differently. Luke 4 tells us that the Spirit of God was upon Jesus. John says, and the Spirit came upon him at the baptism without remainder. Jesus was fully full <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. And yet there are moments in the Gospels we see Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe with things. He says, my hour has not yet come. So anytime people tried to get him before his hour came, he said, I'm going to go through this wall. I'm going I'm to escape. I'm going to get on this boat. Because he was sensitive, watch this, to the Spirit to know my time ain't yet. And so I think some people have confused being spirit-led with playing Russian roulette, who just say, well, since God is with me, I'm going to just do whatever. Oh, that's good. That's Lord, good. Even yeah. our Lord knew. Come on, y'all. Let's get on this boat. Here they come. My hour has not come yet. And when his hour came, he yeah. said, I'm going to set my face like a flint toward Jerusalem. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be taken up into wicked hands, to be crucified, and on the third day be raised. So I say, my hour ain't come yet. My church's hour ain't come yet. We ain't trying to die over COVID-19. There's a more importance of the die for us. Wow. And, and so helping people understand that if Jesus, who is the greatest example of being spirit-led, spirit-driven, he is yeah. full of the Spirit. The Spirit has anointed him to preach the good news to the poor. Then we should likewise follow this sense of when is our time, when is not our time, how to be led of the Spirit, how to, how to know when to respond to, to reason, how to know when revelation yeah. kicks in, and just be sensitive to that. I'm starting to feel some right now. I'm, I'm, I don't know about you. I'm starting to feel some. Just thought I'd let you know. Listen, listen. So, so, so then, hearing with spiritual ears, seeing with spiritual eyes, uh, being sensitive to the promptings uh, of the Spirit by by God Himself. What do you then sense the Spirit of God saying to the church today through through all of this? Wow. Well, your the title of this is about essential faith. Yeah. And one of the things I believe the Lord is doing for many of our churches is stripping away everything we thought was essential, but is not essential. And helping us really, and I know this sounds very rudimentary, but helping us get back to the main thing. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you start to see that our ministries are having to come to terms with things that we put more attention on that are not very helpful in a pandemic. I know there's a lot of debate around this, but I truly believe that we are on the verge of a great awakening, a great revival. I believe God is equipping churches, pastors to move in that. I think there's a greater stirring and a greater hunger. And this is a punctuation, uh, Buckley, of something that I've been seeing and witnessing for a while. I've been blessed to teach in our uh, Congress, thanks, thanks to you and our dean, several uh, years in particular during our annual sessions. And I can't tell you the numbers of, of, of everyday ministry, uh, everyday uh, 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 church folk and, and pastors who will be in the classes, and they'll come to me and say they just feel like God's doing something, God's stirring something. And I feel like this is really a, a peak moment where we're going to see that happen. I also believe, right, I'm going to put my cards on the table again, I really believe that the Baptist, Black Baptist church culture tradition about to experience a real revival. And I don't mean your three-night thing where we get three preachers to come. I'm talking about a real outcry wow. for repentance, wow. a real outcry for God's power, God's peace, 
because I think through this season, wow. more and more of us are awakening to what really matters most. And I'm, I'm hearing you. I'm sensing you say, then, this is a new dispensation we're moving into. That's what I'm hearing. I love it. I, I yeah. feel the quickening even now. <laughs> yeah, it's a new dispensation. It is a new dispensation in a circular way. I huh. believe much of what we saw in the 1890s, what happened in Mount Hell, what happened in other places. The book even talks about it wasn't just um, Charles Jones, one of our state Baptist presidents in 1895 in his presidential address said as we've now come to assemble in Jackson there's great work we must do we must build our seminary Natchez Seminary we must respond to political issues but he says but if we leave here and only look at the great sights and sounds and and and, and just preach and hoop and not ask for the fullness of the spirit to be upon us mm. then our labor will be in vain wow I believe in the local church I believe in convention work. I believe in associational work. God will awaken in this new dispensation that same kind of hunger for him that our predecessors had in the near turn of the century in the 1890s. I think we're in that moment. I think, I think what we're experiencing in terms of national politics, in global economics, uh, in local and state realities, is, is stirring us to a point to what we're saying, revive us again, Lord. And, and I'm excited because I'm not the only one saying that. I think there's so many who sense it and feel it. I'm not saying that all of our churches will have, you know, masses of people show up when, whenever the door is open. But I believe that there's going to be a greater hunger because God's going to give a greater outpouring of the Spirit. And God's going to use the Baptist in particular. I'll say this last point. Because so many people believe that's the last place God would use. Because God's going to use Baptists who have historically not been as open to this. Wow. Because it's going to show the world, well, this can't be, this ain't tradition. Hmm. We, we assume that other folk would do it because they've always done it that way. But when God starts moving in a Mount Helm, in a cave chapel, in a New Hope, in places where, you know, it may or may not be the way we've done it. Why? You're, you're the you're, you're the second preacher I've heard say that <laughs> that wow. that 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 he believes that it it's going to happen, but it's going to happen specifically in the Baptist Church, and the Baptist Church is going to be the leaders of it. You're the you're the second person I've heard say that. That's that's interesting. Wow. Well, you see, one more person, be three, yeah. be two or three witnesses. Right? <laughs> um, I believe. I believe, I believe, even as I told my testimony earlier, that God is preparing some of us for such a time as this. For 20 years of my journey, I think God's been preparing me for this moment. I think God's been preparing others of us for this moment. And, uh, in fact, uh, I have a friend who ain't Baptist. <laughs> He's a Pentecostal through and through who prophesied that God was going to send revival through the Baptist church. Wow. So even those who ain't Baptist know. God's about to do something with us black Baptists, right? Wow. And I, and I believe it. And I feel it. And, and I think, I, 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 you know, it's been amazing. I'll, I'll close with this. The kind of response I've received as I've told people about the, the release of this new book, Deeper Steel, I've been shocked by how many Baptists have been saying, we need this right now. Because at the end of the day, I think we understand that, that our pragmatism cannot be a real substitute for the Spirit's guidance in our ministries. A lot of us are near burnout. 
we've tried this, we've tried that, and God is doing something uh, in a lot of us that's awakening us, awakening us to that. I, I, I look, you know, I'm a Baptist preacher, I talk about all these clothes, but here's my real quote. If you remember, uh, I think it was the last annual session when you preached for, uh, maybe it was your annual address as, as Congress uh, directed. Okay. There were moments during the worship leading up to your message mm. and what happened after your message. My, yeah. You remember that. Yeah. And there was something we could all sense. We may not all use the name, uh, the same nomenclature. Yeah. We sensed there was something different about that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, Zion. I'm, I'm feeling it right now because I'm remembering it. I'm remembering it. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and watch it. And people said, we need more of this. Hmm. Not necessarily the wow. song or the preacher person, but whatever yeah. they whatever they were sensing, they said, oh, this is real, y'all. Yeah, yeah. And I remember preaching, I think that same year, and 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 people coming up afterwards saying, there was this wind that just came through here. Hmm. And what I love about it, Buckley, is that we don't need gimmicks to do it. Ooh, we ain't come on, man. Money lines to do yes, it. sir. Yes, we sir. Saying, you know, we ain't reading your zip code and your social security. It's just God doing oh, it, and, and when it's done, people say, "I know it had to be God." Yes, sir. Because you yes, could, sir. you couldn't have known that. Yeah. What God? And yeah. I believe God's doing that in this hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're stirring it up, man. Yeah, I feel I that. That I, I remember that, and uh, you're right. It 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 was um, it was a move of God. There's no no yeah. other way to say it. It was a move of God, and. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm anticipating more of what what the Lord is going to do in and through all of this. And I want to thank you, brother, for uh, sharing sharing your 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 witness, your work, uh, and and your worship with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, uh, that 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 we can worship the Lord uh, in spirit and in truth. Um, some of the ways that people can follow you. I know you've uh, established the Word and Spirit uh, group on on Facebook, uh, which is a group for. Uh, well, you tell us what that is. Sure. So, yeah, for those who want to engage more in this kind of subject, uh, Word and Spirit Baptists is a Facebook group. It's a public group. You can search for it in, in the search engine uh, and pull it up. And we are a group of uh, Baptists. We're not trying to start a new uh, denomination, just uh, Baptists representing a variety of uh, conventions, denominations, who say we got to continue to have or at least promote a word-spirit balance. What does it mean to be faithful to Scripture, having a high view of Scripture, and having a high view of the work and witness and power of the Holy Spirit so that churches and associations and conventions can experience revival that is biblically-based, Holy Spirit-led? And so we encourage people who have been inspired by this conversation to go uh, and and check us out there. You can also find me at C.J. Rhodes, D-M-I-N, D-M-I-N, uh, you can follow me there or um, add me as a friend there. And then for those who are interested in pre-ordering the book, which will come out yeah. on Pentecost Sunday, May 31st, right. uh, you can go to cjroads.org, cjroads.org. You can pre-order, and once those books come, you'll have those shipped out to you end of May, first week in June. And and that's your latest book, Deeper Steel, uh, on Pentecost yeah. Sunday, but you have two prior books uh, thy kingdom come, and then seven uh, leadership principles uh, of service and success. All of those are available on your um, your website as well. Is that correct? Well, um, the second book is, uh, and, uh, as well as Amazon.com. Uh, the first one, uh, I don't have to figure out where, 
where it's been. It's been a while. Uh, that was a, an assembly of, of a lot of uh, writings that I had uh, uh, composed in my first few years at Mount Helm. The second book, Seven Leadership Principles of Service and Success, is really just a leadership book to help. Uh, very short, 72 pages, a quick read to help people understand what does it mean to, to serve your way into leadership. Yeah. That, that the real way to leadership is to be a servant. Then, of course, the latest book, which is hopefully uh, to encourage a revival in, in Baptist churches um, that, that are biblically based and, and Holy Spirit led. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, brother, again, I thank you for being our special guest this evening, and uh, thank you, people of K Chapel, for joining in and sharing uh, in this conversation with us. Uh, this is our third. We have a few more to go, and uh, so we want to bid you good night, and we will see you on Sunday morning. God bless. Good night.